Hello, everybody. Good evening. Happy summer. Hope it's not too hot where you're at. So I, I've been thinking about the concept of spiritual activism, given that there's so much external activism that's activated these days. And from that, thinking about uh, nonviolence and what it means to embody that, that being, in a sense, a primary concern of a Buddhist tradition. I don't know if you know, for example, that the traditional rains retreat, the, the time when the practitioners would go into seclusion to do intensive meditation retreat, one of the reasons for doing that was that if they were to continue to walk from village to village, they would be killing insects. And in order to avoid that, taking that life, it was harmonious to uh, stop that practice. So the embodiment of nonviolence, and actually, if you read some Buddhist teaching, it, it almost seems extreme. Things like, um, even if you were being, you know, your arm was being sawed off, you should just lovingly be open to the experience. Things like that, that to me seem extreme. And maybe that wouldn't be kind to the person who's sawing my arm off uh, because of all the consequences of that. Maybe be more kind to sock them in the jaw. I don't know. But that, these teachings you find in the, in, the, in the Buddhist canon. And... You know, the framework for Theravadan Buddhism, as far as where we're at to the end of the path, was to become somebody who is love and generosity all the way through, like without exception, like every speck of one's being is turned over in that quality of, of non-aggression. And that was called an arhat, a purified one. And it was said that somebody who accomplished that did what needed to be done. So the responsibility of a human life was viewed as taking care of one's own inner violence, essentially. That was the fulfillment of a human life. That was doing what needed to be done. Interesting. So I want to talk about... Uh, embodying nonviolence in our practice. And I want to talk about it from a non-ordinary perspective. Uh, ordinary perspective is that we are like a small being in this vast world. I'm just, I'm just this little guy in this big city, in this big country, in this big globe, in this vast expanse of time. I'm just one fish among millions swimming through the great ocean of, of existence. And yes, I make my contributions, and yes, I join causes, but ultimately I'm just this little ripple maker. And there is a whole nother, not just a view, but a level of experience, uh, a mode of seeing and being that opens up with Zazen over time. 
And actually, it may dawn on you, but because there's no conceptual reference for it, you, you dismiss it. And the usual materialistic worldview basically just reclaims its territory. It just comes back in and reconditions. But this, this other mode of experience I'm talking about is that each person is a sphere unto themselves. Every one of us is, is a universe. There's no other universe we've ever experienced than our own experience. You never can step out of your own experience, and you can never know another's experience except through the medium of your own experience. When you experience someone or something, you are um, the bridge and the medium for that experiencing. It's not that universes don't interact, but in a way, each of us is, is sovereign. We see with our eyes, and we can never see with someone else's eyes quite the way they do. They can't take up the space that you occupy. They can never be in your shoes because you are singular. And so this is, is touched or verified in deep, in deep Zazen. Essentially, it's saying that you are large. You know a largeness of yourself. But with that comes a different understanding of, of responsibility. Because your life is a total manifestation of, of the universe. Each life, uh, an interactive dreaming, what you do in that life is impacting the whole universe. The state of mind that you live in within your universe pervades that universe because your mind and the universe are just different names for the same phenomena. So the, in the Mahayana tradition, the phrase that the Buddha supposedly said upon awakening was, uh, I and all beings together attain enlightenment. Between heaven and earth, I alone am the one. You get a taste of this kind of experience. It, it is not rational. I can describe it, but it is not. It, it, and that is actually the difficulty because it's so hard to ex accept because it challenges um, so much of the way we think that I'm this little being in here and there's this world out there that a whole bunch of stuff is going on that's separate from me. So we have the teaching of karma in Buddhism. And karma, one way of looking at, it, at that is that the universe is, is psycho-responsive. It's like an interactive dream, and, and every time you press on it, it presses back in a particular way. Whatever you put out gets put back, whether it happens quickly or, or, or over time. That's true for individuals, that's true for societies, and so forth. Whatever you put out is just in the body, the body of yourself, and will come back. There's no... Um, There's no place where cause and effect doesn't ripple. It's all like a boomerang on some level. 
So we're continually molding the dream of our own universe. This is not like, um, what was that New Age movie that everybody was into? Where like, you thought really positive stuff and all of a sudden your car gets paid off kind of thing. It's kind of, it's on the tip of my brain. Uh, the what? You know what I'm talking about. It was this movie. The Secret. The Secret. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not talking about The Secret. This is not your mind makes things arise. Um, but it does. But it does. But in a different way than that kind of crass, you know, let me dream up a bunch of good stuff. So that's the view with which I want to talk about nonviolence, not you as this little bitty speck among billions of specks, but you as one who pervades and really co-creates a universe that you dwell in. So there are many different codes of conduct in uh, all, all kinds of traditions. And in, in practice, they, they help us embody nonviolence. So the precepts that some of you have taken or involved in studying point back to how you might live that way. And when we look at those, we begin to expand the definition of violence in spiritual practice. I think the, the basic definition of violence is some physical act that, that forcefully ruptures or harms. But we're, we're taking that definition and getting more subtle. It's like the stakes are raised for us the deeper we go into practice. So, in Dharma, violence is any act of body, speech, or mind that disrespects the sacredness of existence. Anytime we, we, we lose touch with the sacredness of existence and fall into the, the kind of... Um, woe is me, ordinary complaining mind, I know I have that. In a sense, that's a kind of violence because we've turned away and we've cut off the sacredness, the, the basically miracle of life, that anything exists at all is basically impossible. Nobody knows how that happened. There's just theories. And yet every day there's this amazing reality that there's flowers on the table or there's a cat looking out the window or there's somebody's eyes, or there's the sound of a car. It's all impossibly miraculous, and we continually forget that. This is like the highest level of maintaining nonviolence. In um, Tantra, it's called pure vision. And they take a vow to maintain pure vision, to not forget that the universe is sacred from top to bottom. That's like the main precept. I really love that. And you know, you, you start to get into um, indigenous cultures and you see that that kind of understanding is there from the very beginning. That's a, that's a primordial understanding that existence is sacred. It's a very modern mind that has deviated from that, that view. So another level of, of embodying nonviolence is or what violence is, from this perspective, any act of body, speech, or mind that creates and believes in seeming separation or division of oneself from the universe. 
from this dreaming fabric of reality. All the ways that we, we um, assert and hold to being a separate entity, a little bubble that is apart. As soon as, as, soon as we, we do that, we not only um, belittle the depth of ourselves, but we start to take actions based on that separation. So any act of, of, of rupturing or dividing the universe. Now, this is not like abstract. Because everything is the universe. All the ways in which we create division in ourselves or in others are part of this kind of, of violence. In the Upanishads, there's a line, aversion carves out the self. The, the, the way the mind gets um, pointed in basically the feeling that this shouldn't be existing. That's one of the things we do all the time in our lives, don't we? We decide this shouldn't be existing. This shouldn't be happening. I do it all the time. That makes the separate self because we, we say... I am being impinged on by the universe rather than this is part of my body. I include this. Now getting a little bit more, maybe a little bit more accessible for us more of the time. Violence is any act that distances us from our true nature. And how what we understand our true nature to be will change uh, as we practice, but maybe a, a place to enter is any act that we feel, anything we do with our body, speech, or mind that parts us from our authenticity. The kind of things we do that we later, not just, it's not a moral guilt that we feel, but we feel that we violated something true in us. Any act that distances us from our true nature or any act that believes the limited narrative of our life. It's really so easy to get, get to drawn into um, a vision of our existence as dim or despairing or not having measured up. It's, it's, it's like a bait that's always waiting for us. To, to, to kind of go into those, those storylines. And because we are an interactive universe, when we believe that, we start to actually get feedback. It's, it's self-confirming. So that's why it's, it's, it's such a dangerous thing. And that's why, you know, spiritual teachers are always saying, drop the story. Drop the story, drop the story. Because um, for most people, the story tends to be a diminishment of the sacredness of their life. It tends to be based on comparison. The narrative of my life is in comparison to someone else's life or to some other life that um, I imagine I should be living. But what if that wasn't there? What if you didn't have any comparison about how you should be? I'm not talking about your authenticity. But 
But what is your authenticity? Is it really that narrative? So that's, that's an expansion of, of what, what violence is in Dharma practice. They're high bars. You know? they're, they're really high bars. But they, they are, um, I think, beautiful north stars. In that tradition of, of Buddhist Tantra, there's continual practice of ritual repentance of this, of this vow to continually see the sacredness of life because it's impossible to do, because you can't do it. There's this, there's this acknowledgement of, of being human means that we continually fall asleep and lose the sacred vision. We, we stop seeing our blessings. You know, over and over and over. So they've ritualized the um, basically the contrition over that. You just kind of renew your desire to see the sacredness over and over, to be reconnected with that. I think that gains power over time. That's how the mind and intention work. The more you intend something, bit by bit, it gets, it gets stronger. So anyways, we, we, at this ultimate precept of seeing the sacredness of our, of our universe, we fail, but, but yet we can we mend that through zazen, through practices like um, prostrations, different ritual. There's a lot of ways um, to mend that. For some people, um, the deepest renewal of the sacred vision of life is psychedelic medicine, is plant spirit medicine. For some people, that, that is a, a profound turning to a renewal of seeing, seeing the sacred. So I thought I would, just, I would explore a little bit um, the ways that we can manifest this nonviolence. You know, gentleness is a word that is, is used a lot in Dharma. The aspiration to be a, a gentle a gentle being, not, not wimpy, not spineless, not ineffective, but gentle. So when we, when we talk about karma, there's always this emphasis on body, speech, and mind, because I think we really tend to see that the things we do with our body create consequences. There's, there's so many things we can do with our body that can really quickly alter our life. Um, but we forget that with our speech and our mind, that's true too. In some sense, this, the most powerful thing is speech. Um, what can be uh, mended and what can be ruptured with speech, it's actually, um, when you look at it closely, it's really, um, what is it? It's a little bit scary have the power of, of speech. Um, but these are just some things that came to mind if we want to start to practice this quality of, of, of nonviolence. Because it's not small, because each universe is, is total and influential. You know, there are whole martial arts and uh, body practices that emphasize um, graceful embodiment. Just moving through the world with um, softness. 
when you see somebody who does that, it really, who's well-trained in that, who's embodied in a gentle way, let's say they've done Tai Chi or yoga or something for a long time, it actually is striking. It really stands out because they're in a relationship with their body that's very loving. And we tend to think that having a relationship with the sacred is about some invisible um, energies floating around, but it's got to start with your body. It's got to start with your body. In uh, one of the contributions, I think, that, that the Zen tradition really makes to this is this emphasis on treating objects as sacred. I, I never thought of that. And if, frankly, when I first came into Zen temples, I just thought they were anal retentive. Why do I have to set my shoes down in a, in nicely? Why don't you waste any water? Why did you, you know, wash every piece of vegetable that falls on the kitchen floor? You know, and in Japan, it's even more, it's very, you can waste nothing. They don't, they just, everything is meticulously, um, all resources are meticulously respected. And that's because they know that that is the body of the universe. Or rather, maybe as young trainees, they don't know, but over time, living like that, you start to really um, see that. If we relate to phenomena as just throwaway, then that's how we're going to see them. <clears throat> so uh, there's a whole text called the Tenzo Kyokun by uh, Dogen Zenji that's all about how to regard cooking as a sacred practice. And he says things like, do not see um, the vegetables with ordinary eyes. Do not see the ingredients with discriminating mind. So he was talking to people who had to receive whatever donations they got. They might have had a garden, but otherwise what they ate were the, the, what came to them. And when I was at Sogenji Monastery, what I discovered was that the Japanese are very particular, the Japanese public, about what vegetables they eat. They want them to be beautiful. And so the vegetables that are not beautiful, even though they're good, get sent to the monasteries. And so there was something like 500 pounds of potatoes that we had to eat like in a month because they were donated. We couldn't waste them. So it was potatoes for every meal. So that's the kind of context that Dogen Zenji was talking about. Don't see these with ordinary eyes. You know, we, we, it's so easy to complain. He said things like, um, take up a ordinary leaf of vegetable and turn it into the Buddha. That was his uh, challenge for the Zen cook. Turn these ingredients into a sacred offering. It's really fun to cook with that kind of spirit. And, and how do you make this act sacred? Um, so continuing with just my ideas, mine and the tradition on, on embodying nonviolence. Um, beauty. Uh, this is related also to the gracefulness of the body, but beauty, not for self-advantage, but to enhance the universe. When, when, we, when we are a beautiful presence, that, brings, that just brings in beauty. It's kind of redundant. But beauty is a way of, of manifesting nonviolence and sacredness. Um, pleasure. Pleasure, not, not the kind of passive, like way that we can just in, indulge, but to actually 
actually enjoy pleasure. And what I was thinking about this was so many of our ancestors did not have the opportunity to actually enjoy life. It wasn't that long ago that bloodletting was a common practice, you know? Things were brutal pretty recently for most people. And so to, to actually enjoy joy pleasure is to actualize this aspect of the universe that is so, um, it's so rarely really appreciated. So uh, I want to move on to speech. There's so much you could say about how, how powerful speech is and how much beauty you can manifest with speech. You know, Lama Lekshe reminded me of um, casting spells. You know, spelling and the word spell are, are related. Another thing that we are losing as modern people is, is the magic efficacy of words. I don't think we understand how much language parameters our minds and how much the way we language both reflects how we see the world but also affects how we see the world. So there's so many little ways that we can use, use speech in a beautiful way. And one way we can touch into the, the power of this is just remember the last time somebody really appreciated something you did, just in a genuine way. And just like the difference that makes when somebody bothers to really say thank you, and you know it springs from an authentic place. I wonder why we begrudge appreciation for each other so much. Like, are we afraid that someone will get more than me? Like, if I, you know, if I give away all my appreciation, I won't have any left for myself? Or, like, what, why, why don't we, why don't we have a culture of praise? Authentic, authentic praise. My, my observation is it has, it really has no negative effect. You know, if someone's got a really swollen head, maybe be moderate there. But actually, my experience as a Dharma teacher is that most of us are really afflicted by the inner critic. There's some people who act like they think they're great, but very few people actually think they're great. Most people, I mean, myself included, almost everyone I've ever worked with has um, a deep, deeply embedded inner critic. So praise is, and like appreciating who they are is just an easy way to bring in some light, some, some softness. And poetry comes to, to mind um, because poetry, whether it's written poetry or having our speech be more poetic, it, it activates and opens up different ways of seeing the world. And that's, that's all that not being free is, is a limitation on seeing. So I think of um, poetry as an act of, of, of nonviolence. If we can approach language that doesn't affirm the self and other divide, 
that doesn't affirm the fundamental split of the ego and world. Can we do that with our words without speaking in haiku? Is there a way to speak for our speech to be in accord with our deepest knowing of the universe? There's this discipline I, I really like, and I've tried to teach classes on it multiple times at the monastery, and they never quite went over too well. But there's this discipline you could look up called E prime that was created by a, a linguist many years ago. And E prime basically said that the use of the word is and is not is a kind of lie and a kind of violence. Because what we do with the word is, is we make a definitive statement that is not true. Joe is a butthole. We cast this spell. We, we, the word itself carries a false power because it, it creates a congealing. It makes us think that things aren't multivalent, that there's just one way that things are. It makes us think that things um, exist in stasis. And so the practice of E prime is um, to use language where you don't use is or is not. It's very interesting. You try to convey your experience the way you have to have a more open use of language. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but um, interesting to look into. Um, of course, prayer is uh, oh, a really well-known way of putting positive energy into the universe. And you can even look up, there was a study done by one of the yogic academies. Of They did a concentrated time of prayer. I forget how long the time period was for a particular community. And apparently there was a control. So it was good, good scientific uh, research. And the crime rate went down in this area that they were praying for over this extended period of time. And there are other studies like that about the effects on people's health who are ill, who are prayed for, and that it seems that there is some transfer of energy that happens in some way. I don't know. I'm really interested in that. I, sometimes people sit to think about loving kindness practice like, okay, if I do enough loving kindness, I'm going to make people feel, uh, feel love or I'm going to make people happy. And maybe... Maybe this like, subtle effect really does add up. But actually, whenever you use speech to wish people well, you feel better immediately. Our, our vibration changes. And I think that's, that's the more immediate uh, point. Positivity waves. Is that too new agey? I really like that phrase. Positivity waves. Um, lastly, about nonviolence of speech, um, not saying something is often um, a, real, a real way of embodying um, the sacred or, or of not rupturing. Just the refrain at that wrong time. We can kind of sense it when we're on the, the cusp of it. You know, you feel that thing you want to say rising in you, and then part of you is like, don't say that. And then it's kind of like crawling out of your mouth, and it's like on your, you know, it wants to get out. <clears throat> not, not saying. So it's not just 
you know, doing something, but sometimes it's not doing. In the mind. You know, I, 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 I come back to this over and over, but I really believe a lot of physical violence that we uh, either have experienced or have perpetrated or, or hear or see about has a root in toxic beliefs in the mind or a general, a general disrespect for human beings that, you know, it's not in your fingernail. It's not in your hair follicle. It's in your mind. It's in your heart where that springs from. So the work we do on the cushion of, of letting the mind come to its natural quality of openness and softness is, is the medicine for that root of violence. It's, it's the antidote. It's the antithesis of a mind that would commit violence. I've been, I've been just saying this over and over because it strikes me. You know, we would not, you do not harm somebody from that state of mind. I think it's almost impossible. And that mind is actually our, our, our true nature. That mind is, is much more real than the mind that arbors um, ill will. So seeing, seeing, um, seeing the sacred in people is also one way that we can amuse our minds to really have an effect. There was, um, I like to read James Hillman. James Hillman is a, a Jungian I really respect. He wrote a book about um, life purpose in which he said that most of us come in with some deep life purpose. And really, it's like a, a purpose that's living through the individual. And in his research, he saw that the people who most activated it had their gifts affirmed by somebody when they were young. There was somebody who was present enough and willing enough to see that this person had some talent or some potential or some proclivity, and they named it and they nurtured it. They were willing to see it. And those, and that was a pattern among people who ended up really fully offering what they had to offer. So I guess this is back to what I said about appreciating, but this, this has to do with seeing what, what can, can be appreciated. It's an art. I'm a uh, firm believer that we can do a lot to change the climate of our mind. I went through a period in my life where I woke up just absolutely um, miserable and angry every morning. That's just how I came out of bed. And I would have negative thoughts about somebody right away. And the only thing that really helped me with that was I would immediately just start doing either mantras or loving kindness practice. I had to put something else in my mind. I had to make it so there wasn't so much room for that negativity. And so not only did I kind of, you, you crowd out the negativity, but you start to change the energetic ambiance of the mind. And you think about more fundamental than the thoughts that come, 
the kind of emotional climate is more fundamental than the thought itself. And so we can work on that. So a mantra practice is awesome. I, I, I really love doing that. It feels, it feels so helpful. When we, when we take these kind of practices seriously, uh, seriously of maintaining the climate of mind, we're getting more sensitive to cause and effect. And we're kind of coming to a more a place in our practice where we want to nip things in the bud, negative flourishings, sooner and sooner, because the consequences, they, they tend to play out. Yeah, and I, so lastly, in the mind, I just want to say, I think the deepest gift is seeing someone's Buddha nature. It's actually seeing through the conditioning and, and seeing um, their deepest authenticity. They're, they're seeing the light, the light seeing the light, like recognizing each other. It's a different way of, of viewing somebody. And the degree to which we know that, then we can look at somebody else like that. Our understanding of what it means to be alive, we see other people through that, that very same pair of eyes. But as we deepen that, then we see other beings in the same way. Back to um, sacred vision. So, if we have the aspiration for body, speech, and mind to be nonviolent, we not only have this inner work, but we do have uh, the question of what kind of lifestyle choices do we make? And where, what's our relationship with sacrifice? What amount of... Uh, non-harming can we be in harmony with it's I don't know if there's ever been a culture where it was so it's so hard to actually be really ethical because we're in the in a capitalist system and and we know so much that so much of what we're connected to when we look closely is connected to harm in some way so perfectionism will be another kind of violence but you know, what I hear from people who are really educated in climate change is that if we're not willing to really make sacrifice, if we're not really to actually change our lives in some significant ways, then we're just not going to make it. So um, for me, that's the most challenging thing. How to translate this way of being that's nonviolent to lifestyle choices that are not. I don't want to give up a whole lot of stuff. So it's a really it's a really difficult question. So as the world gets more intensely externally oriented and materialistic, that's actually the the description of the Kali Yuga, the the time we're in in the in the Indian vision of universal cycles, that we're in a time when materialism gets more and more intense. And what that means is that we have less and less faith in spiritual matters and we more and more are interested in fixing our problems with the world of objects only. 
um, the more that accelerates, and it sometimes it seems like it's actually moving faster and faster. Embodying the spiritual activism, I think, is uh, even more an important and vital di dimension of contribution. Is it the whole contribution? I don't know. But I do think it's, it's, it's vital. One of our late teachers, Amushin, recently was talking about some legislation that went through somewhere that she was really touched by. And she said, you know, I know that it's all our practice energy that made that possible. I had never thought like that before. That's a really interesting way to view things. That this shift in political policy, she has this conviction that it's, it's all the practice that we do, the, some, somehow that energy we put out of, of loosening the fixation of, of mind was what allowed that to happen. So thank you for, for listening to that. I want to see if there's any um, reflections on the theme.